John 13, 15. This is still in the midst of the Passover meal. It's the final Passover meal that Jesus had with his apostles. They were having some problems with things like pride. They were not willing, at least on some occasions, to be the kind of servants they needed to be. So Jesus gave them an illustration of foot washing. Uh, it's now just, I mean, the, the cross is with, within eyesight, not very far uh, as far as Jesus' future. People are going to come and arrest him very soon. So Jesus really is really trying to get these fellows on the right track as far as their spiritual mindset. So he says in John 13, 15, 4, Because I have given you an example that ye also should do as I have done unto you. A key word in verse 15 is the word translated example. Uh, there are multiple words in the New Testament to describe example. That might seem surprising to us, but there are uh, different terms with some nuances. The word that's translated example here means, and I'm going to give you a formal definition, a figure which teaches by making known a truth. Now that might sound like kind of a technical definition, and it is a little technical, I guess, but it's, it's a way of saying that what's going on here, the example... Now sometimes people say, uh, this is an example. If it's uh, down at the factory, you know, there are these three steps. This is the example, one, two, three. And each time you're dealing with the part, it's got to follow this example, one, two, three. Then there are the times where we give an example, and it's an example that uh, is uh, in spirit, if you will. It's an example. You do similar things to this. You don't have to do the exact same thing, and that's what we are dealing with here. That is, the example was one of service. It was the need for humility instead of having some kind of foot-washing service uh, at worship. Uh, Jesus gives yet another illustration that he's not talking about literal foot-washing when he says, do as I've done unto you. That is, do in a similar way, do in a like way. He could have said, do what I've done to you, and indicate then uh, by that that he wanted the same exact thing to be done, but he didn't use that particular word. And when you look at this culture, the Romans, uh, when you think about them, would you suspect the Romans were proud people or humble people? Proud. We're a Roman. You know, we're from the great nation of Rome. And the Greeks, of course, did not have much use for manual labor, and Jesus' disciples would have been familiar with these attitudes in the culture. But the Lord comes along and says, that can't typify you. You need to be different from the world. You need to be people who are humble. You need to be people who are willing to serve. And this is a good example for it. Well, those lessons are still important for our time, are they not? When we look at our culture and certainly some others, you think God's people have lived in environments where competition, winning, being the best, achieving power having authority and wealth and ultimately being served by others, those things are looked upon with great favor? That's the American dream, isn't it? Live on some island where you're stretched out on the lawn chair and you've got attendants serving you hand and foot. We never see a picture of a person gaining wealth and then they go into service. Almost never. And yet that's exactly what Jesus' picture is. Uh, and as we think about this today, especially when it comes to religious Folks, uh, we find often cases or often situations where people want the, the special titles, the special clothing, the special positions, and if people do not get treated in the right way, they don't get their special parking spot, people don't respect their title, their robe. For example, if you look at Catholicism and you find, at least this has been my experience, you find uh, a man that you need to address and you don't call him father, happy or not so happy? He's very displeased. You call me father. You address me by my title because I've earned that. I deserve that. This is who I am. Uh, so the ways of the world, in many ways, and especially this way, are con uh, uh, contradictory to what we find in the Scripture. It's also, I think, kind of noteworthy before we pick up with verses 16 and 17 uh, to make this point. 
when you look at the religious groups, and not to pick on them, but I think to make a valid point, when you look at the groups that wash feet, for example, you think about the Pope. Let's just use him because he is maybe the best, the clearest example of this. He will kind of set aside his robe, set aside his power and authority for maybe a day or two, maybe a full day, and he will wash some feet. But what happens after that day or two has passed? Puts the robes right back on, and who's he? I'm Lord God the Pope. Well, that's not what Jesus is saying here. He says when it comes to service, when it comes to humility, you do that once or twice a year, once a quarter at the you know worship service where you're washing feet? He says no. Do it when? You seek to do that on a regular basis. It is to be ongoing action. In fact, as you look at verse 15 there, uh, should do is expressed with the present tense. So sometimes it seems like the groups that literally wash feet, this may not be true in every case, but at least in some of those groups it seems to be a substitute for true humility, true service, and those things are, of course, very displeasing to God. Thoughts that you had before we look at verses 16 and 17. You, know, you just made a comment about where he said should do. And that's what he was telling him about, doing this as an example. And, and you want to hear a lot of, you know, say you know, what I do because they're not getting the right example. Yes. Jesus was very familiar with that and people today, it's very easy to say the right things and even easy to know the right things. But actually putting that knowledge into practice, that's really where the test is. Oh, uh, Don. Explain the last Wednesday or that the word ought. Yes. How did you explain that? Okay. There is a word in the New Testament which is translated uh, must. For example, back in John 4, verse 24, uh, day, D-E-I, would be how you would spell that in English. uh, And that has a sense of must. Um, And you do find, for example, um, I believe it's the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians um, 11 when Paul talks about women. They ought, let's, let's see. Um, I'm not able to check the Greek text real quick, but I'm pretty sure if memory serves right that it is the same word. Uh, it's going to be within the first 12 verses. Yeah, it's uh, first ten, uh, verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 10. For this cause ought the woman to have a sign of authority on her head. Now, if he said she must have a sign of authority on her head, what would that sound like? All right, there's no alternative. It is a command, and God says, do this if you want to please me. But when he says ought, that's not quite as intense. You have there something that is not a command. And depending on the context, um, I would even go so far as to say it it could be optional. Um, But it's not in that same category as must. Here, would you look at Acts 17, 28? Okay. Okay. Acts 17.29 yeah. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold, silver, or stone graven by art and device of men. Uh, again, I'd have to take a look at the Greek text, but if we are looking at the same word here, uh, it's the same kind of thing. Um, you know, there's no... Uh, we're not forced to look at the Godhead in that way. God doesn't eliminate our free will. But he said, basically, you could translate that, but it should not. Yeah, we should not. We must not look at yeah. We ought not to do that because it's wrong. You know, we we can make the same argument, I think, with murder. I mean, we could do it if we wanted to, if you use ought. Well, there again, with ought, you have some consequences. For example, if I say to someone, you ought not to murder him, we understand what that means. If I say you must not murder him, then that slightly changes the thought. 
But all, I wouldn't say, again, in every situation, when you look at the passage, you're going to have to bear in mind the context and think about what is being said. Um, but typically, I think you're going to find that ought is not going to be to the same um, emphasis as the word day or must. Trace, did you have a thought? We're a little loose with language sometimes. For example, if a parent says a child must do this, well, sometimes we don't let must mean must. And sometimes, going back to some of the factory regs, you know, it should be this way, it ought to be this way. If it's not, you can get dinged and they will say this is not going to work. But um, I can say there is some flexibility there, but for a good overall definition, must has a sense of absolutely necessary, uh, there's no option, ought, you begin to see that it's it's in a little different category. Steve? I had a boss that used to say you might do this, you might do that. He didn't mean you can't do it. He didn't mean might. We used to laugh about this. Yeah. You might do it, you might not do it. No. Yeah. He meant to do it. Yeah. Well, the boss says you might want to be here at 7. Uh, well, there's probably a little bit more than a suggestion involved in that. So we, we use language sometimes in somewhat imprecise ways, but... Uh, you do have this basic point in Scripture. Anybody else? Okay, let's pick up then with verses 16 and 17, John 13, if you've just joined us within the last few minutes. Verily, verily, this is that amen or amen or truly, truly that we often see in the book of John. I say unto you, a servant is not greater than his Lord, neither one that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, blessed are ye if you do them. Jesus, as we've said before, has been saying a lot about service. He's been saying a lot about humility. He demonstrates that by washing the apostles' feet. And now here in verse 16, we have some more information about the topics of humility and service. He says, a servant is not greater than who? His Lord or his master. Well, that makes sense. We understand that. And then he says, if you're sent by someone, you as the person who is sent are not going to be greater than the person who... Sends you. Well, again, that's pretty, com- that's pretty much common sense and nobody should have a difficulty with that. Jesus ties this in with what had been done. If He was the one who had washed the apostles' feet, He lowered Himself, He humbled Himself to that point, then what should the apostles be willing to do? When it came to some kind of menial task, whether it was literal washing the feet, taking out the garbage, sweeping the floor, whatever it was, if He's humbled Himself to this point, then He says... You should do it too. There should. Hmm? Yes, that's exactly right. If the greater has done this, then there is no reason whatsoever that you should fail to do these same kinds of things. Otherwise, I'm going to reject you. Jesus said the apostles uh, needed to know this. Now, the word that's translated know, it's a verb, and it is expressed with a perfect tense. Uh, so that, to me, suggests, it's kind of like this. Uh, we tell a child, why'd you do this? You knew better. Well, did the child really know better? Yeah. You talked to him about that for several years. Uh, you know, maybe just the other day. The child knew that was wrong, but in spite of having that knowledge, what did the child still do? He did it anyway. Do you think it's possible for adults to have a knowledge of what's right and fail to do it? Oh, yeah. Do you think Jesus 
disciples had a knowledge of the need to be humble and serve? They did, but they were failing to apply it. And now Jesus is within eyesight of the cross. They are failing to practice one of the key lessons that he had told them about. So it's time for him to go back and remind them of that. He is the sender, if you will. He is the Lord. So there was no way that these fellows could say, well, you know, that task is just kind of beneath me. It is so small, so we're not going to do it. Jesus says that they knew better. And then he talked about the fact that they needed to do that. Present tense, which is a point that Sherman made just a little bit ago. It's not enough to simply know God's will. There are many people who know what's right, but they fail to do what's right. And there are some other people who engage in those activities from time to time. But when Jesus uses the present tense, he says, you've known this stuff, you need to do this stuff, ongoing action. What would you say to the person who says, well, I'm going to humble myself, I'm going to help out, I'm going to lower myself once a year. I took out the trash for you last year, sweetie. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, we have some interesting responses for that kind of thing, and they're not favorable. One fella, uh, well, actually it was kind of a combination uh, in this book, but they wrote about L.S. Bringle. Um, Goes back some years, uh, he wanted to become part of the Salvation Army. He was regarded as a gifted clergyman. Now you think about that. Um, Let's, maybe to put this in more modern day terms, I know he's old and and pretty much uh, dead, but Billy Graham. Okay, here's Billy Graham. And Billy Graham shows up, wants to work for the Salvation Army, and they tell him, Billy, we've got a job for you. We want you to go out and blacken boots. Now, can you imagine that? Billy Graham, national, international preacher, we want you to go out and shine some shoes. Well, for a lot of people, if they had Billy Graham's reputation, what would they say? Are you kidding me? Don't you know who I am? Look at my resume. I've been all over the world. I'm a famous preacher. I've got sermons where you know thousands uh, have received some religious information. Well, this fellow, Bringle, looked at that and he thought that was degrading because, quote-unquote, he was a man uh, of stature and deserved respect. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but it is a huge, huge problem. You find people... There was a story. Um, I don't remember, it wasn't Washington, but one of the presidents, that when horseback was still common, uh, you know, there was a soldier that came up to him and uh, asked him to do something. I don't know if you're the president, you know, you're on horseback, you obviously could probably have the guy shot. But whichever president that was, and I'd have to go back and do some looking, I didn't have the illustration in, in the notes, and it's been years since I've looked at it, but, uh, you know, he did what needed to be done. He lowered himself, he humbled himself. And he told that soldier, he said, anytime you need some help, you come back and you know, ask the president. That's me. Well, the soldier went away with shock on his face, not really realizing who he'd asked. But um, you know, that happens today in the military. I can remember some situations where we're working with Canadians. And their insignia was a lot different. You might have an enlisted guy that looked like he was an officer. You might have a, a general that you just really don't know who he is. And there were some times where some of those guys were ask, asking somebody for help, and it was you know, maybe a colonel. Maybe a general. And you find both kinds of reactions. Some of the fellows, they were indignant. Oh, I'm a general. I'm a colonel. And you need some instruction as far as, you know, who I am, what these bars or what these ropes mean. And then there were some other fellows. Hey, would you, would you help me uh, pick up this pipe and move that over there? You know, well, that was a general. And he did that and walked off. And maybe or maybe not the soldier uh, ever came to realize realization of who he was. But, um, you know, truly great people are willing to help regardless of the circumstances. Um, In the ASV and in the King James translation, if you look at verse 17, you see the word if. 
especially that first one, that could just as easily be translated since. Uh, since you know these things, you're blessed. If you do them, you're going to be happy, you're going to be well off, you're going to be fortunate. If you avoid the kinds of pride and humility, uh, or uh, the um, uh, pride and the refusal of service in the world. You also have in verse 17, I think, a sequence. Uh, people in our day and time, they want to be happy. People want to feel like they're having a good life. And Jesus picks up on that thought by using the word blessed. Where do we see that word elsewhere in Scripture? It's the same word. Blessed are the... Alright, it's the uh, Beatitudes of Sermon on the Mount. Ray quoted one, one of them. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, all of those things, Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 11. And here's the sequence. If you want happiness, if you want joy, if you want that blessed life, first of all, there has to be humility. If you're running around as a person who is filled with pride, you're not going to be a happy person. Why is that true? If you're proud, what do you need? To make your life good. All right, you need that affirmation. There was a study released just a few days ago, and again, I didn't pull it out for this lesson, didn't think that it would uh, relate. But if we think back to our high school years, we remember the popular people, right? If you were real popular in high school, well, maybe you're the exception. But uh, anyway, it was said that the real popular people in high school, they got out of high school and they didn't do so well. Well, that makes sense to me because here you had the people in high school, maybe they were uh, ahead a little bit as far as you know uh, the intellect or maybe maturity, those kinds of things, and they're getting all of those accolades from their peers. They're being looked up to. They're being um, you know, exalted. You know, he's the football captain. She's the uh, homecoming queen, captain of the cheerleader squad. You know, you just kind of go down the line. And you're built up to that point. Then you go out into the real world. And now it's not just competition with another 50 or 200 or 400 people. Now you're out there with everybody in the world, in the workplace. And maybe in a workplace where they've hired some really bright, really hardworking people. And what happens to your balloon that you're the God? It's popped in a hurry. Maybe before the first day is over. Okay, she's swatting to fly and not giving me an illustration. I wondered about that. Oh, that was a good timing, Willis. But uh, uh, it's happened to people. And it's, it's, it's been a really sad, a very, very terrible thing. So uh, that's kind of what you're having here. There has to be that humility. And then along with holiness, which is, I think, implied in uh, the lesson that Jesus is giving, humbleness, holiness, that willing to serve, and then happiness. But that's not what we see in our world. As we look at society, if you talk to people, um, the idea is that if we have people who are under us, if we have people who are serving us, if we've got employees, uh, then, of course, we're doing well and we're going to be happy. But Jesus' question is not so much how many people are under you, but how many people do you serve? And he says, if that's the way that you choose to live your life, you're going to be blessed. But so many people in life, it's kind of the doggy world, doggy dog world. We want to get to the top. But Jesus says, you be content to work there at the bottom. And it's going to be uh, the, the best life that you can have. Dolores? have that daily, you are the best. You have made the best decisions. 
you know, you've made the best choices. You know, it, it's, it's a hard line to follow sometimes when you're raising kids between assuring them that they are good, respectable, you know, faithful, you love them, but then on the other hand, it has to be tempered a little bit with, you know, your home is always your refuge, but when you go outside of these doors or you go outside the doors of the church, there is, there is darkness out there too. Yeah. And it's a lesson that's not being communicated too well in some homes. And social media, things like Facebook and Twitter and, um, you know, some of the other things that people are using, that has also uh, exasperated the problem. Kids are made to feel like they are their own little God. And it's gotten to the point now, uh, you know, I've become, over the last few years, aware of some situations where people would post something, for example, on Facebook, and they were expecting certain friends to like their post. You know, they expected, you know, half their friends or 70% to like their, uh, their post, and people didn't. They got upset. You know, because here's something about me. It should be exalted. It should be praised. Lift me up. And you didn't praise me. I'm mad. I've defriended you. Are you kidding me? That's true. Huh? That's very true. It is. Sometimes, I don't know about the rest of you, I don't have time to look at everybody's post. So if I don't have to like something you like, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but this is, this is the epitome of childishness. And it also goes back to a failure to teach people about humility and a having an ongoing desire to serve. So it's been an age-old problem. It's not discussed all that often, um, but it is a growing issue in our day and time. Anybody else? Okay. Let's uh, pick up then with verses 18 and 19. I'm sorry, Ray, that, overlooked you. Me, uh, that word truly, truly, or very, very, it's also uh, amen. Yes. 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 Yeah. And that is, it's, it's a way of calling attention to a thing. It's a way of saying, you know, pay careful attention. This is very important. And that, that's right. Jesus, at this time in his life, these fellows were just not getting it on things like humility and service. And it's kind of like grabbing somebody by the collar and saying, you need to listen up. All right. Verses 18 and 19. 18 says, I speak not of you all. I know whom I've chosen but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth my bread lifteth up his heel against me. From henceforth I tell you before it come to pass, that when it come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Now, this kind of resumes a thought that we find earlier in the chapter. If you back up to verse 10, as well as verse 11, you find Jesus talking there about Judas. doesn't specifically mention him, but Jesus saith to him, verse 10, He that is bathed needeth not to save, uh, wash his feet, but he's clean every whit, and ye are clean but on all. For he knew him that should betray him, therefore he said, you're not all clean. Now we've talked about that. Now Jesus comes back to that thought here in verse uh, 18, and now he expands on it a bit. He says, in looking at the disciples, you're clean. Basically, you're good. As we were back there in verses 10 and 11, we talked about the fact that they were trying to do what was right, discussed whether or not maybe they had been baptized uh, by John, whether or not another uh, baptism was, was necessary, that is, the baptism into Christ. But now, Jesus comes back to that point and says, basically, everybody, doesn't name him, but speaking about Judas, everybody is basically good. And here, Jesus says, I know that. Well, the word that's translated no is expressed with a perfect tense. And remember that perfect tense means that there was something that was true or something that happened in the past, and that state or that thing continues. Uh, it's ongoing action, if you will. Uh, 
Jesus said, I knew this about Judas. I've known this in the past, and I continue to have an understanding of who he is and what he is going to do. Then Jesus makes another point. Someone might say, well, you know, uh, when the apostles were selected, who all was involved with that task? Was there anybody besides the Lord? Was there any man that helped him pick out the apostles? Who chose? Jesus said, I chose. So if there are going to be any questions about Judas after his betrayal, uh, here John 13, verse 18, Jesus says, you're going to have to look to me. Now, we talked about this a little bit in some previous classes, but since we're faced with it again, I do want to um, discuss some of the things that we've looked at in the past, but look at them from a slightly different direction. Uh, there was a question asked last week that took us down this path a little bit. But as we look at Jesus, he said, I chose the apostles. Were their characters fully formed at the time he chose them? I've got some head-shaking yes, I've got some head-shaking no. One of those answers I think is right. Which one? Were there characters... Let's, let's put it in question form for us. Let's say that we've got a person who's 50 years old. Well, let's, let's throw out a couple of illustrations. Let's say, not knowing exactly how, the, how old the apostles were, uh, but to make the illustration really good, they, they were probably somewhere around 30. At the age of 30, is a person's character fully formed? Boy, guys are a tough crowd. Maybe, maybe yeah, I was going to say, maybe we need to define our terms. Um, at the age of 30, is a person so locked in to his life choice that he's not going to change his course? All right, every, all right now we're all on the same page. Good. So it is possible for a person during that time of life to have their, and I think that's what was being said with the yeses, they have basically formed a lot of their character. But it is possible as time passes for them to change. Now, some Bible examples of that. Before Peter was called Peter, what was he referred to? As? Alright, we've got Cephas, uh, Simon. Uh, Cephas, you'll find that back in John chapter 1, verse 42. So, Cephas is brought to the Lord. And Jesus says, you're going to be called Peter. What did Peter mean? Rock. All right, now, if that meant you're going to be called rock, that was a way of saying in the future some things are going to happen so your character is going to remain the same or your character is going to be changed. Change. It's going to change. Now, we don't know exactly uh, how old Peter was, but he, if he was there in the you know 30-year age range, there was going to be some shifts there. Now, it wasn't going to be a moral shift. There's no indication that he was an evil man and became a good man. Or he was a good man and became an evil man but there were going to be some shifts in his character. Uh, you find the same thing today. Uh, what would be some examples of a person? There's some character shifts, some, some noticeable personality shifts as the years pass. Well, from teenager to a married person to a person with children, a person that accepts God, I mean, you're... Oh, okay. All those steps. Oh, yeah, and they, they do change some things. Grows, changes, and Building on that, do you think that a person might be a very selfish person? But after marriage, changes? Might not have been dishonest as a selfish person. Might not have been angry at others and, and a wife beater. But uh, again, he's more giving after he gets married. What would be some other changes that Betty, uh, would be consistent with what Betty described? You can be a hothead when you're a teenager. A temper may calm. When you look at the Apostle John, he seems to have, in the early years, been a hothead. But you look at him later in life, you get over to the books of uh, 1 John and so forth, the Apostle of Love. 
Don't quite get that picture early in life. So he's still got a good heart. But he mellows out a little bit. What else? You think a work ethic might change? You think a person might work harder at the age of 40 than he does at 20? It's possible. So you, you still have that basic character, and sometimes there's some radical shifts. There's also a case where a good person might turn out bad, bad person uh, might turn out good. Uh, then you have some other things too as far as indications in the Bible of people who altered their paths. You have back there in the book of Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, two fishermen. They're described as Peter and Andrew, and Jesus said, you're going to become what? Fishers of men. When he said you're going to become fishers of men, what did that indicate? You were not fishers of men. So your character, probably not going to undergo some big changes, but as far as you know, your mission in life, the things that you're focusing on. So people, um, you know, Jesus, as he, going back to Peter for just a second, as Jesus said to Peter, you're going to become a rock. Did Peter have a choice about that? Okay, he was able to say, I'm going to, you know, choose, I'm going to use my free will to become a rock or not. Jesus made the prediction, that was what Peter chose. Did Andrew and Peter have the choice to become fishers of men? Absolutely. They could have said to Jesus, we don't want to do that. They could have tried it for a while and they could have turned their backs on it. They had their free will. If we can focus on what happened with Peter and Andrew, we then I think are in a better position to consider what's said about Judas. Uh, Going back here again to John 13, verses 18 and 19, Jesus said, I chose you. Some people say, well, you know, I think he he chose a devil. Well, it doesn't say that. He said he chose a man. And then the scripture would be fulfilled. Everything, and we talked about this a little bit in the previous class, everything that I see about Judas, at least a period of time, says that he was one of the true and faithful. But just as those shifts can begin to occur in life, sometimes shift in character, that uh, a person becomes a little better or a little worse, or maybe that there's a radical shift in character. Uh, that, as far as I can tell, is what happened to Judas. And just as those bad things began to unfold in the life of Judas, and Scripture was fulfilled with him. We're given less specific information about the other apostles, but wouldn't you say that Scripture was also fulfilled? God's plan was also fulfilled by the other eleven? What's God's plan? Well, and offer salvation to the world. The other eleven fulfilled that plan. They used their free will to go this way. Judas decided that he was going to use his free will to go the other way. And that, of course, fulfilled God's plan in totality. Now, there's some more here to say, but let's pause and see if there's something you want to add or ask. Okay. Jesus... As you look at these passages, there in the middle of verse 18, he says, but, that the scripture may be fulfilled, and then he gives the passage. He that eats my bread lifted up his heel against me. Uh, as you go back and you look at this, you find, anybody know where this comes from? I'll ask it in question form. From the book of Psalms, Psalm 41, verse 9. As you go back and you look at this information, it seems to relate to Hithophel, that name, that character meant brother of foolishness and David. Uh, We're not completely positive, but as you go back and look at Ahithophel, it seems like he was um, the grandfather of Bathsheba. And he was... Anybody remember who um, Ahithophel was as far as his connection to David? What did he do for David? An advisor. He was a counselor. 
And as you go back and you look at what is said about him in the book of 2 Samuel, he was a trusted counselor. He gave some very, very good advice. Uh, so, David, you've got Ahithophel, this, this close friend, this advisor. And then you've got something else going on in David's life. And Ray made an allusion to this, went through some of this history uh, when he gave the presentation for the uh, Lord's Supper last Sunday. Who's the other A guy that fits into the story? Name begins with an A. Ahithophel, the counselor, and then we've got David's son, Absalom. All right, Absalom does some bad stuff. Uh, Absalom, at a point in his life, decides that he's going to try to take over the kingdom from David, his father. And uh, Ahithophel gets involved with this activity and offers some really bad advice. Let's run a couple people back to the Old Testament. 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 23. And then we'll have you read verses 21 and 22. We'll back up a little bit. Then jump over to chapter 17, verses 1 through 4, and then kind of tie things up here. 2 Samuel chapter 16. Who wants to take care of that for us? All right, Betty. 1623. 2 Samuel, huh? I hit the bell. Which he gave in those days was as, as if a man inquired at the oracle of God, so was all the counsel of the oracle of David and the Absalom. All right. Now, if you have a fellow who gives you counsel that sounds like it's coming directly from God, I mean, he's going to be a trusted advisor. So Ahithophel, you can imagine just how close David must have felt and, and how much um, you know friendship there must have been there between the two. All right, now, remember Absalom? He's that son of David. Uh, let's get some information about him, Absalom the son, and Ahithophel by backing up to verses 21 and 22, same chapter. Now, this is some pretty bad stuff. Um, Ahithophel, in trying to counsel Absalom on how to, you know, take over the kingdom, um, says to Absalom, you know, they're your dad's wives, the concubines. Uh, you go and you take them for, for yourselves. Basically, in public, you make it clear that you're sleeping with your father's wives. Um, you know, bad, bad stuff. But uh, he had, you know, this plan to go ahead and do great damage to David. Um, and you see that reflected by you know what Jesus said here and also back there in Psalm chapter 41, verse 9. All right, let's move over, if you will, to chapter 17, Betty, 2 Samuel, and look at the first four verses. Okay, Ahithophel gives David's son Absalom some advice. And as you, if you were to continue to read in 2 Samuel chapter 17, you would find that Absalom, David's son, gets advice from another guy. And the other guy's advice is what David decides to follow. And then as things continue to unfold, you read about two deaths. The counselor, Ahithophel, he dies. And then you also find, 2 Samuel chapter 18, that Absalom, David's son, uh, he also dies. Now, here's kind of the interesting thing. Jesus may or may not have intended this point as well. But when you think about that death of Ahithophel, 
Do you remember how he died? Remember, he's this friend of David. He's been David's close confidant. He's been David's close friend. I mean, David looks at him as, as someone who is just like speaking to God. How does Ahithophel die? He dies by his own hand. He, he, hung, himself. he hung himself. Well, now we've got Jesus involved with who? A close friend who was Judas. Judas also dies. And how does Judas die? He hangs himself. Uh, so maybe that part of the comparison was intended, maybe not, but it is very, very interesting. So as we kind of think about that uh, history from Second Samuel chapter 16, 17, and 18, you have here, against that background, the statement, he that eats my bread lifted up his heel against me. Well, that's really what Ahithophel did. You can imagine if you were that precious counselor to David, is he just going to have you over there in the kingdom eating scraps? If you've got this guy that's giving you good advice, he sounds like he's from God, where do you want to put him as far as when it's mealtime? You come to my table. I mean, I'm going to take care of you. And that was kind of the relationship that Jesus had with Judas as well as the other apostles. Uh, when you have this expression, he that eats bread, uh, you know, he that eats my bread, he that eats bread with me. What? And there are some passages in the Bible uh, that would illustrate that for us. A couple cross-references would be 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 11, and also Matthew 9, 11. But I think we can figure it out on our own. What does that mean? We're eating bread together. All right, we're having fellowship, we're having a friendship, we're close friends, we're close associates. Uh, and that's one more, even if we didn't go back and look at what's in Second Samuel, it's another way of describing uh, this kind of activity. Now there's something else that's involved here, and it helps us understand a little bit about another Bible character in a completely different story. Uh, today, you know, somebody might have lunch with somebody today, and what's the status of their friendship tomorrow? I'm going to stab you in the back. I'm through with you as a friend. That's not what it was like in Bible times. If you shared a meal with somebody, somebody came into your house and had a meal, it was pretty much we're buddies for life. I may not, you may do something that irritates me, but I'm going to stick with you. I'm going to stand by you to share a meal with somebody. Uh, it was just a symbol that we have an agreement and you know we're not going to somehow stab you in the back and we're not going to violate that. Let's go back to the book of Genesis for a second. Genesis chapter 19, verse 8. Who wants to take a look at that for us? Genesis 19, verse 8. Josh? Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men. They have come under the shelter of my Okay. Now, for a Western mind, this information is very, very difficult to process. Remember Lot's house? He's got some strangers there, the heavenly visitors, strangers surround the house. They want to you know, um, have a sexual relationship, homosexual relationship with these visitors, and Lot's not willing to do that. He says, but I, I will make you another offer. Who am, who am I willing to send out? My daughters. Why on earth would he be willing to do that? People have puzzled over that for a long time. Here's the answer tonight. As these fellows have come into the house, you think Lot just offered them a bit? Good hospitality says what? You need something to eat, need something to drink, need a place to rest, whatever it is, my house is your house. So the idea of hospitality, sharing a meal with somebody, it goes way back even to Genesis chapter 19. And it was a way of saying, if we have done this, I am not going to turn on you. 
I'm not going to stab you in the back. I'm going to support you and help you in every way that I can, even to the point of what we read about in Genesis chapter 19. So Judas has done some really bad things, and it's not just one item, uh, but this was another, and that's why I think um, you see Jesus going back to this point. He says, I have eaten bread with you. Not just a meal down there at Burger King, but this was a way of saying we had a bond. We, if you will, had an agreement. We were tied together in such a way where what you're planning, it should have never, ever taken place. You know better than this. And yet, for the reasons that we suggested, Judas was willing to turn against the Lord. Then we have something else here. You not only have the idea of eating bread, but you have what else described. There was the lifting up of the heel. Well, on the surface, that doesn't sound like that's you know necessarily too bad. A person might do that to exercise. But you think exercise is under consideration here? What's it mean to lift up the heel? Oh, right. Yeah. It almost reminds you of the kicking of a horse. Or maybe the image is that here's a person that's involved in a race. We see that sometimes, maybe not necessarily a foot race, and you want to knock out the competitor. So you just trip them. You know, they're running around on the track. Track, and you think, well, he might beat me, so I'm going to go ahead and just trip him up and let him uh, fall down on the pavement. So it's it's an expression of violence. One more way to describe Judas' actions as being uncalled for and unjustified. Now let me show you this as well. Somebody want to go back to Psalm 41, verse 9? When you have an Old Testament passage cited, it's always good to go back to the Old Testament passage and see how it compares, whether everything is there, something is missing, or maybe the words are just pretty close but not exact, and, and see how the two line up. Dolores has it, Psalm 41, verse 9. Okay, just those first three or four words again to make sure everybody heard them. Would you read them again? My best and truest friend. Okay. Do you find those words in John chapter 13? They're not there. Jesus omitted the information about Judas being his best friend. Ever notice that? Well, he may have done that for the reason that we talked about in John 6 verse 64. Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not, and who it was that should betray him. So he had that insight about Judas as far as what this fellow uh, was going to plan to do. And uh, Jesus took took appropriate precautions because he had that knowledge. Anything that you want to add or ask? Dolores? I footnote that I was reading from Genesis 19. It said, They have come to my house and I must protect them. Yeah. And there again is the idea. I've given this, uh, had a meal with this fellow, I've extended hospitality, and I've got to protect them. The price would have been high. I mean, it wasn't that Lot uh, hated his daughters, didn't have much love for them, but this was just really an unbreakable rule. And he recognized that. Uh, Let's say some more about verse 19, and then I kind of want to pick up with some more information about it next week. From henceforth, I tell you before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, you may believe that I am he. The Lord went back there to Psalm 41, verse 9, the information about Ahithophel, and he said, I'm doing this information so that you can believe that I am. Now, if you have a Bible which is good about italicizing things, do you have anything italicized there in verse 19? Yeah. And usually when you see something in italics, what's that mean? All right, there's translators put that in there. So if you exclude that, Jesus says, I am no he well what's that remind you of I am, I am. 
I am. Uses the present tense, and they may or may not have picked up on the significance of that, but it was a way of affirming that that he was no ordinary man. Uh, Then you have this other point, and this will be our uh, stopping point tonight. When you look at this information, Jesus says, I'm telling you about this stuff in advance. Well, what did we just talk about? What was he telling them about? You're all clean, but one. And that's going to be a problem. There's going to be this fellow, this one, what's he do? I've had a close association with him. We've had bread together, but what's he going to do? He's going to drive the knife in my back. He's going to betray me. And Jesus says, I'm telling you this stuff now. For what reason? Yes, you can believe and also so you can be prepared. The disciples were going to go through a lot with Jesus and the cross. And maybe they would have just been completely overwhelmed with sorrow and the information about Judas just might have been too much for them. So Jesus says, I'm giving you this information now to prepare you. Um, And the point that we're going to talk about next week is some of the predictive prophecy that was made. Uh, Jesus says, now you're going to be able to look on this situation and you're going to understand uh, you know, what I was talking about. The predictions that he had made, he believed that that was going to help strengthen the faith of the apostles, of the disciples, and that's still true for us. Predictive prophecy is one of the great ways to demonstrate that the Bible is not a human product. It is truly a product which is inspired of God. Uh, now, one of the final observations I want to toss out for consideration tonight is as Jesus makes these predictions, could he have specified Judas? Could he have said, instead of just there's one of you, Judas is the one that's going to betray me? He's made an agreement. Well, he had the knowledge, so he certainly could have done that. Why do you think he might not have given all the specific information? He might have given them just enough so that when this stuff happened, they could look back on it and figure it out and say, oh yeah, that's exactly what we're talking about. There's no doubt. Why eliminate a specific, why not have a specific reference to Judas? Hmm? I think that's probably a good reason. And we can illustrate that by, remember what happens? Peter, the mob comes for Jesus. What's Peter grab? The sword. And whose ear does he slice off? Malchus. So we know at least Peter got really upset at the idea that Jesus was going to be taken. Gets out the sword and Jesus has to stop him. If they believe that one of their own, Judas, was going to betray the Lord. I don't know what they would have done. But based on Peter's behavior, they might have tried to kill him. Jesus used wisdom every step of the way. He gives them just enough information to help prove who he is, establish his claims, establish his people so that they're going to be able to get through the difficult times. And there's just no man that behaves in the way that the Lord did. It really is an amazing story once we begin to go through it detail by detail. And uh, he loved us enough to you know, make sure that every detail came out as it needed.